Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me today is Omar Harris. He's a former executive of GSK in Allegan with more than 20 years experience in the pharmaceutical industry. He's the founder and managing partner of Intent Consulting and author of The Servant Leader's Manifesto and Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss. But before we get a chance to speak with Omar, it's a Leadership Hacker News. Although we can't predict the future, what we can say is 2022 will not be a return to business as usual. The pandemic, social unrest, cultural divisions and new remote working all but guarantee that leading teams and business in the coming year will be anything but business as usual. Leading in the hybrid world, digitalization, automation, all which workers need to learn skills outside of our routines and our normal roles, combined of course with getting used to that hybrid world. So how do we prepare for challenges as leaders in 2022 and beyond? So I'm calling the six themes as leaders we need to be focused on, starting with using technology in human ways for human reasons. When it comes to embracing the hybrid workforce, embracing technology is a priority. Professor Roshni Ravindran completed some research and explored the integration of novel technologies into the workplace and where those technologies intersect with the psychology of human behavior. With studies including the examination of monitoring technology and the use of virtual and augmented reality, Ravindran focused on the use of new systems to augment human life and how new technologies can be used responsibly. For example, the use of avatars may relieve that sense of social threat through psychological distance, or how an organization's behavior tracking application may be used as a better means of collaboration rather than for people to be feeling that they're constantly monitored. And as companies start to rethink about how remote working impacts on the workforce, Ravindran also says, one key challenge pertains to the missing social connection, that feeling of being part of the same group. So the use of things like virtual reality and other augmented reality is gonna be a key critical part that drives the psychology for people to adapt some of those technologies too. One thing in 2022, all companies will need to focus on and that's improving company culture. Darden's professor, Laura Morgan Roberts, is an expert in human potential, diversity and leadership. And she notes that compassionate, responsive leadership is what every organization needs, whether face-to-face or screen-to-screen. She also cites learning as being a key element of that culture change, as well as peer-to-peer support. A crisis is messy, and so too is innovation, Roberts goes on to say. As organizations compete and grow, the successful ones will emphasize on a culture that is inclusive, authentic, and has development at the heart to retain talent. Successful leaders in 2022 will forge beyond diversity efforts and developing that minority talent, pushing their organizations to really embrace the importance of equity and intelligent inclusion. Ultimately, the impact of diversity, equity and inclusion efforts, however well-meaning, will depend on how well they're executed by its leadership. 
Decades of research in social psychology and organisational behaviour show that when individuals question the value of group identity, that social identity threats increase. They register and they are massively damaging, not just to the individual but to the organisational relationships. Professor Martin Davidson, Darwin University's Global Chief Diversity Officer, goes on to explore how those organisations can design and institute programmes and policies that work to eliminate inequality. He calls out in his studies that the biggest focus should be reducing the psychological reactivity that arises in response to any racial friction. And let's remember, in 2022, we're all in the same boat. Friction can sink the boat, keeping team members out of sync, when in fact they should be pursuing the same meaningful goals that are aligned through all the organisation. Professor Lynn Isabella is an authority on managing teams, and she likens a business unit to a crew rowing on the water. What it takes to row together with seven or eight people is true of the manifestation of teamwork in action. Winning crews share common characteristics. Not only must every team member have the mastery of technique at a similar level, but have different strengths so each can learn to row with the rest of the crew. Professor Isabella goes on to say in her recent studies, as a member of the team, each rower must learn to follow and lead simultaneously. Individual stars will only slow the boat down. So what about leadership capability? Well, to take their teams to the next levels of achievement, successful leaders of organisations and teams will need a cohesive understanding of what leadership really is and what it's not. Having interviewed hundreds of great leaders and coaches from around the world, what I know is true leadership is about influence and not power. It's more about inspiration than control. Power is based on the development and dependence of others and the authority based on the formalization of a simple hierarchy that we've become used to. Command and control approaches lead to burnout and disengagement. The thing is, working through influence takes more effort, but over the long haul leads to more engaged, purpose-driven and productive teams. Until you create more leaders who are willing to provide their efforts in your direction, you're not really leading. And my final message to Kickstart 2022 is, business is human. While COVID-19 and the pandemic has accelerated the mass adoption of new technologies, the things we can rely on are human-related. Leadership is profoundly human. We can't rely on AI and technology to replace the human traits of judgment, compassion, empathy, and ethics. And in 2022, leadership will require a human touch now more than ever. So whatever new bold technologies you adopt and the innovative solutions you seek, Let's just remember, human-centred leadership is what's going to make 2022 a real success for you and the teams that you lead. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. Let's get into the show. Our special guest on today's show is Omar L. Harris. He is the founder of Intent Consulting. He's an expert on business and servant leadership. He's a thought leader, speaker, and award-winning best-selling author of five books, including The Servant Leader's Manifesto and Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss. This is about leading in the era of corporate social justice, equality, diversity, and inclusion. Omar, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Happy to be here, Steve. Nice to be speaking with you. So tell us a little bit about you and how Omar arrived to do what you're doing and how you're making such a great impact on the world. Where did it all start? Uh, I mean, it started early on. I think um, my parents, especially my mother, really invested in my my uh my talents uh early on in my in my life and kind of you know gave me something to aspire to in terms of telling me that she wanted me to do something great 
in in the world with my life. Um, I was uh, uh, enlisted into the Get the Program in the third grade. It's kind of a funny story about that. I thought I was uh, being uh, studied for like uh, mental disorder or something like that. <laughs> and it turns out that it was uh, actually an assessment for the Get the Program. And, um, you know, uh, from that moment on, really kind of having, having extra time to invest in my, um, intellectual acumen, having the best teachers, having the, having the privilege of being able to, 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 you know, expand my mind and, and learn in different ways. And, and I think that when I, when I reflect back on it, I always thought it was a bit unfair that I was going to classes that and getting access to, you know, information and, you know, different types of teaching that other students weren't getting. Yeah. And, and I, I thought it was fundamentally inequitable. Um, and I think that, you know, it, this is what starts in, in, our, in, in Western society, specifically around the fact that there are people we see that we see as elite or having certain pedigree or whatever it is. And you get that, you know, these, these privileges, um, ha- begin to happen at an early age. And then you have those who never receive any types of privileges who have to overcome constantly for their entire, the entirety of their life. And, and what I fundamentally believe is that everybody is, is uniquely special and talented and that everyone needs the same kind of investment in order for them to unlock their true potential, which is what I do now is try to help every single person that I encounter unlock their unique potential, their unique uh, purpose and help them connect that to their goals and, and their progress. But I mean, I think that I evolved there over the course of a 20 plus year pharmaceutical career, living all over the world, you know, U.S., Middle East, uh, Southeast Asia and Latin America. And and yeah, I've, I've lived a life when I've been able to kind of do what I'm good at all the time. And I, I just want everyone to have the benefit of that. And I love the fact that you've raised inequity in this whole process because it's the one thing that gets often lost between diversity and inclusion because it is not about race it's not about color it's not about creed no it cuts across all of those lines doesn't it it does there's a big intersectionality about inequity uh, and people don't people confuse equity and equality all the time but they're not the same thing yeah um and and that's why it's very important to explain what equity is for people so they understand uh, really, if you've seen this, uh, this there's a there's a famous cartoon that shows three children at a fence looking at a baseball game. Let's say let's say it's on the soccer pitch for your global audience or the football pitch, and imagine looking over trying to look at the watch the watch the match, and you have one tall child looking over the fence easily, and you have one kid who's basically just can't even see over the fence, can kind of get a glimpse of some things, and you have a little short kid who can't see anything, right? And so this is fundamentally inequity that has nothing to do with anything. It's happened to be three different heights, right? And the treatment strategy for those three people in that case is different. Exactly. So you basically, you, 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 you have to, um, oh, and the, and the tallest person is also standing on, as I have to be standing on a, uh, on a milk crate. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so, so it has a little bit of a boost. So you take the milk crate away from the tallest one, you give the shortest and the next shortest person, the milk crates they need to be able to see over the fence. And then everybody can participate uh, in viewing the the match. It's a really interesting approach. And I'm glad you've highlighted that. As, as I'm a visual, I can actually see these three characters actually <laughs> stuck behind the fence. Right, right. Now, you've had a wonderful, diverse career across four continents and had the experience to really firsthand 
learn and and experience around the whole kind of diversity, equity and inclusion genre. But from your perspective, is there maybe a time or a moment or experience where there's been this kind of this moment for you where you went, aha, this is it? Um, I, I, mean, I don't think it was certainly a single a single moment for me. I think it, it's it's just being observant to your experience and the experience of others. Um, I think that for me, one of the things that really affected me early in my career was the fact that I was uh, one of the only African Americans in uh, in marketing in my entire thirty thousand person company, and 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 asking myself the question why why was why are there not more of us in pharmaceutical marketing? Because if you think about, and that, at the time I was working in cardiovascular disease and cholesterol, and this is a uh, this is a a disease that disproportionately affects um, you know black and African American people, right? And so you would think that in order for you to bring not only not only you know um, uh, bring the solutions to market more effectively, but also have more effective consumer messaging. And messaging to doctors around the disease modality, you should represent the, you should at least be representing the demographics of your primary patient populations, right? Absolutely. So if working high blood pressure, diabetes, cholesterol, you should have a higher propensity of, of you know, of, of, of people of African descent in those teams, I think, just because they're going to have a personal connection to that story. I mean, both my parents have high blood pressure. Everybody, uh, you know, almost every uh, person that I have that's a friend of mine over 40 has high blood pressure in, in our community. So I think that we have a connection to it, an emotional and intellectual connection to this that others may not have that would give us an advantage in terms of messaging and marketing and all the things we're trying to do. But at the time, I was the only uh, person of, of, of color on uh, that team in the entire world. That's a, a remarkable stat in itself, isn't it? Did you find out what the reason was for that? Uh, I think it comes back to um, the fact of where they're sourcing talent. I think, you know, once again, there's this whole um, uh, uh, misnomer or myth that uh, there's not enough of a certain type of group for a certain position. We don't have enough, you know, African-American talent for marketing. We don't have enough women in tech. We don't have enough blah, 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 whatever. The, when you, whenever you see scarcity, it's because you're not looking in the right place yeah. or you're not actually investing in planting seeds to create the crops that you need for your future success. So basically, intelligent organizations, it's sort of like going back to our football example. There's a reason why uh, there are uh, junior clubs, right? Right. So basically, the, the top, um, uh, you know, Manchester United is scouring the world for the next stars 15, 20 years before they ever become adults. Of course. You know, they're looking at seven-year-olds, 10-year-olds, and they don't care where you're from. You could be from the middle of sub-Saharan Africa, or you could be from Latin America, you could be from Timbuktu. It doesn't matter because they understand that they need a constant supply of stars, and that and that star base is not going to come from a single demographic. Um, and this is something that in corporations, we don't understand yet. We're not actually building a pipeline early enough pre-college, right? You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. pre, like looking at where the talents are there, there are talents all over the place. If you create a wide enough net early enough to find these individuals and groom them, which is why all the work in, in STEM is so important and trying to encourage, uh, you know, um, African-Americans and women, 
and immigrants to get into that space because now we're trying to build a pipeline of, of future engineers and entrepreneurs or whatnot. That same philosophy needs to be applied to to re regular business, finance, HR, you know, marketing, um, sales leadership, all these different functions. You do the exact same thing. There's no there's no difference in those approaches. Yeah. So I think that that's in my case. I think that I was only there because my 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 particular organization happened to be sourcing at least one or two. African-Americans from my school, which was a historically black college university every year. But most corporations were not using HBCUs as a talent pipeline source. Um, and that's why the demographics were were so bad. And, and even with them actually having a pipeline, you know, you're one of 10 every year. I was one person brought in and given a chance every year. And that in itself just feels wrong in today's society that you were brought in to be given a chance. I mean, how disrespectful to your education and your future talent is that just that notion almost, right? Yeah. So, so you, you know, you, you understand that you recognize that, you know, it's not right. And, but then you have to basically try to change things from the inside, right? You're in there. Right. So now my job is to, first of all, perform and demonstrate that, you know, um, they didn't make a mistake with the hire. And then second of all, it, which creates immense pressure, actually, by the way, that that, you know, other people don't understand the pressure that, you know, your female or your different demographic uh, talents are putting themselves under because they realize that there's not a lot of them and that if they don't succeed, they carry the bag for everybody else, um, which is different than some other some other uh, other racial um, uh, groups don't have to have, don't have that same baggage. That's very true. Coming in, like basically we're carrying the bag for everybody else of our type. Yeah. You know, they just, they didn't speak concerned about you, about themselves. Like, I'm just worried about me. Yeah. You know, I'm not worried about everybody else who looks like me or from the same ethnic group or racial group as I am. But I, I know that at least in the, in the U S and I know this exists in a lot of people from African nations is that when we get these chances, we're thinking of them not only for ourselves, but we're thinking about everybody else who could potentially be coming in behind us. And so we we take it very seriously, and we we put ourselves in the in in the unenviable position of of having to be perfect to succeed. Yeah, and I was very fortunate. I was brought up in the outskirts of West London, a very diverse community. And I, but I get white privilege. Most people mm. have to actually really give themselves a nudge to consider that. It is actually a privilege being a white Caucasian male in most cases in the workplace until recently where things have really started to change. Right. And we've got higher profile that's making people think very carefully about that. I've always been acutely aware of that from a young age. But that's not as uh, as frequent as you bump into, right? Well, no, I think it's an interesting point you bring up. I think that we, we all talk about capitalism and we believe in capitalism. We believe in these society. But capitalism, the free market economy is based on competition, Right. The more competition there is, the better everybody. It, it, it basically brings the best out of everyone, right? But when there's advantages in the system that prevent competition from happening, then you don't. We all stagnate. I guess so. What we're seeing today is finally we're seeing the ideal competitive landscape where basically, you know, for a given job, you have women, you know, immigrants, uh, uh, different ethnicities, different. Um, gender, different gender identities, all competing for the same positions. That only makes everybody better at the end of the day. Of course. The issue, however, Steve, is that leaders have no idea how to lead these diverse teams now. That creates a whole different problem, which is you can bring in the talent, but can you manage them? 
Well, that's a really interesting uh, notion. So I run a, a coaching group, a volunteer coaching group. And, you know, for the first time, we we put this whole white fragility on the table mm. as coaches of you know, do we talk about it mm. and 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 how does it hold us back if we don't and it's really interesting that still in today's community there is this sensitivity that still sits around race and sexuality and diversity but people are still a little nervous of bumping into in fear of doing the wrong thing it's prickly i think people i think people would rather avoid uh avoid the conversation and assume that everybody thinks the same way and that's where the issue comes right. down to is basically right um you can't assume um assuming you know gets gets us all in trouble and and i think that having a structured dialogue is is important um but but for me more important than the dialogue and the and the, I, I guess some of the some of the recognition of biases and 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 beliefs is the point. What, why are we doing this? Are we doing this to try to be, become better people? Are we doing it for a moral imperative? Um, okay, those are really good reasons to do some to make change happen. But for me, fundamentally, this is about business risk. And this is about, you know, what higher executive level executives are paid to do, which is to mitigate future business risk. And the best way to mitigate future business risk today is to have an environment where justices are Injustices are consistently uh, eradicated. Inequities are consistently uh, eliminated. Diversity is consistently expanded. And inclusion is consistently enhanced. And so I believe that um, when you approach it from the position of business risk and the need to create an environment that, that fosters a culture where your diverse talents, whatever you have, whatever your demographic mix is, can actually provide the innovation that all the statistics state are available to teams that are more diverse than those that are homogenous. This is when you begin to see uh, the real benefits for for business, and when you can begin to finally add value to not just shareholders, but you know customers, the community, the environment, and your employees. Yeah, hallelujah to that. Love that. So. You've created some great products working with your team at Intent Consulting. You have Tempo, which is an innovative solution for enhancing employee inclusion. And you also have Equity Pulse. I wonder if you could maybe just tell us a little bit about how you're using them and how, as a leader listening to this, I might think about using some of that methodology. So um, I'll start with Tempo because basically when I was writing my, my most recent book, Be a Jedi Leader, Not a Boss, Leadership in the Era of Corporate Social Justice, Equity, and uh, uh, Diversity and Inclusion, I was thinking about what solutions exist to highlight in the book, basically, what, is, what, can, you, what can you go to as a leader who's trying to um, do this important work within your organization? And I realized that um, uh, there's a, pro- a system that I, I roll out around injustice in the book. Um, and then the diversity, there's a lot of work and great solutions around hiring diverse talent and, you know, making sure you capitalize diverse talent. But I realized that the equity and the inclusion pieces were areas where uh, it's more difficult to quantify for business leaders, the impact of these two, um, these two areas, right? Right. So what, why should we, what do we get when we invest in these areas and what is the outcome for our business? And so I began challenging myself to think about how I could come up with solutions. And I, and I, you know, think about technology a lot in terms of how can we leverage technology to make things more transparent, make things more equal and make things more uh, visible to everyone. And so the idea for Tempo was basically thinking about the the corporate all hands meeting 
the town hall where you have your senior leadership coming together to talk about and all the companies, you know, employees coming together to talk about performance, you know, initiatives, uh, um, you know, benefits, whatever the topic du jour may be of in that quarter. And what happens is you have the CEO and their leadership team talking at the employee base. Um, there may be some Q&A that happens um, with the employees, but but there's but there's not it's not really an inclusive event. It's really a one way conversation. Right. Right. This is what I want to tell you. Um, and so I thought about how I could transform that into not only a two way conversation, but in a fully inclusive conversation where we can lean into the difference that we have in our organization. And so Tempo takes the idea of audience response systems where you have a polling function. And you're allowed to basically poll the audience at different moments and specifically turns that into um an opportunity to allow your employee base to include themselves in the three most important questions leaders should be asking. First of all, when I communicate, what do people understand? Of what they understand, understood, what do they agree with? And of what they agree with, what are they aligned to do? So these three questions, Steve, drive business. Hmm. Understanding, agreement, and alignment. And so in Tempo, the type of polling you ask is related to those three questions. Understanding, agreement, and alignment. Um, where we can visualize basically the percentage of our population that agrees, understands, and is aligned with whatever we're talking about, right? We can also uh, drill down by demographics for the first time in real time. Mm. So we can see, you know, but let's say uh, boomers versus zoomers on a given issue of agreement or understanding or alignment. And then we can allow people to ask questions directly linked to understanding agreement and alignment. And so now it transforms the conversation into my job as a senior leader is to present strategy, but also to also to make sure you have high understanding, high agreement and high alignment makes me work harder as a senior leader, which puts me in the puts me in the position of a servant leader. I have to serve and support you in order to get your understanding, your agreement and your alignment. And I have to include you in the conversation in order to move the organization forward. And that's what the technology is designed. To Love it. Yeah. So that's tempo. Um, and then basically I was thinking about, um, so in the U.S. in 2019, this organization called the Business Roundtable, which is comprised of the top 200 uh, U.S. corporations across various industries, uh, uh, changed the definition of a corporation away from shareholder capitalism, which is the profit motive for shareholders to what they call stakeholder capitalism, which is um, a, a more benefits for more stakeholders like employees, customers, communities, and the environment, in addition to shareholders. And basically, um, they committed to, to transform capitalism in this direction. The question I asked myself was, is who is holding them accountable? Mm. So I created Equity Pulse as a service similar like glassdoor.com where employees can actually rate their the employers on their progress related to jedi issues and it's fully anonymous and employees can come from any company go to equity pulse fill out our our brief survey and what will happen is we're going to create company profiles based on their jedi progress through the lens of the employees of the organization so the most powerful feedback you can probably possibly have is your employees telling you how they think you're doing um, based on these this uh, this survey that we've put together. It's a really neat approach to 
getting people to focus on what really matters, which is subtly different to most employee surveys. It kind of <laughs> focuses on that inequity, doesn't it? Exactly, exactly. So it's kind of a, a, a third-party external accountability tracker that um, hopefully we'll get into the zeitgeist and people will begin to reference it and say, okay, before I make a, you know, if, before I decide what company I want to go work for, let me check out the equity pulse on that company. Let me check out the, you know, let me see if, if they're walking the talk. And that's what I was trying to do. That's the intention of equity pulse. So when you came up with the, the notion of be a Jedi leader, not a boss, how much Star Wars influence was there actually involved there? <laughs> zero. Well, I, I, won't, I won't say zero. I won't say zero. So in the Servant Leaders Manifesto, I, I had a, a throwaway line where I said that servant leaders wield influence like Jedi wield the Force. Uh-huh. And so that was a throwaway line, which is very much linked to Star Wars, yeah. if you think about that line. Yeah. But um, as I thought about you know Jedi, the acronym, because when I wrote that line, I didn't know there was an acronym for Jedi that was just as equity, diversity, and inclusion. I didn't know this was a thing, a real thing in, in the zeitgeist. Um, uh, the Jedi acronym was actually created by a man named Marcelo Bonta, who works in the environmental um, advocacy space, right? And so when I learned that there was actually an acronym for JEDI, I took the same idea and flipped it on its head and said, this is a compelling, it makes a great title, but also like um, I, there is, there are some parallels between if you think about the JEDI and you think about, you know, you know, Knights at a Round Table and you think about the people who are forces for good mm-hmm. in the in the universe. And so... Um, although I don't really make explicit Star Wars um, parallels in the book, you cannot with you know with Lucasfilm and they're lit- they're they're very they're very litigious. I can imagine. <laughs> um, but but you can the idea pervades subconsciously, which is being a force for good in your team, department, division, function, organization, community. How do you, you know, what does a force for good look like today? And a force for good means we can't allow the stuff to persist. We can't allow bad actors in our systems to just go walk around willy nilly, not being, you know, with no, uh, uh, no, no retribution or no um, justice for them. We can't allow these employment and uh, these, these, uh, these pay gaps, gender pay gaps to persist. We can't keep trying to make, you know, everyone uh, conform to a particular style of working in today's day and age. And we, and we can't uh, exclude people if we want to be successful. And so I think that that being a force, I wanted to give a, a, a language, but also a methodology to what it means to be a force for good in the corporate setting. And as part of that force for good, you managed to call out those business sins of employee inequity <laughs> so that we can get rid of some of that toxic boss behavior. And then yes. you've overlaid some principles as well. Maybe we could just spin through those. Yeah, so there's five business sins of employee inequity. And I think these are, are relevant to your global audience, Steve. Um, the first one is privileged hiring. So the problem begins right from the start, which is what we just talked about, which is, you are only looking at a certain area for your new hire. So you're basically looking at, you know, pedigree or what university the work person went to or where they previously worked or, um, or how many years of experience they have. None of these things are proxies for success. None of them guarantee success. Right. Um, the reason why we have these filters and these criteria is because managers are lazy and they don't want to onboard and train people. So basically the justification is the pace of work is too fast to have to 
on board and, you know, help people come up the learning curve. But anytime you do it in an organization, regardless of how much pedigree you have and how much experience, you're going to have to go through a learning curve regardless. And people fail all the time that come from the best institutions with the best education and the best background. It's not a, it's not a guarantee for success. So why, why not cast a wider net? So basically the solution to privilege hiring is hiring for behaviors and not pedigree. So basically the behaviors I recommend are, I call it the whom, work ethic, heart, optimism, and maturity. When you put those, when you put a team together of people who work hard, have shared passion, are solution oriented and mature enough to overcome inevitable conflict, that group of people will trump, you know, your high IQ, elite intellectual talent every time. That's the first inequity. The second uh, employee inequity is sink or swim onboarding. So as I mentioned before, you come in the door and your first day you're working and no one is giving you the keys to the kingdom, telling you how to navigate this new system, uh, who you should be talking to, answer your questions about the who's, what, when's, where, why, how's, everything works in the organization. You basically are given 90 days to sink or swim. And if you don't make it, we're going to kick you out the door, which makes no sense if you think about how much money companies invest in recruiting, right? And people don't perform well when they're under that kind of pressure either, do they? <laughs> exactly. So why would you not just do what I say in terms of going overboard on onboarding? So basically, onboarding is not HR's job. Onboarding is the hiring manager's job. And when I onboarded people from our organizations, I spent a minimum of three hours with each new employees, making sure we aligned on expectations, on trust builders and trust breakers, on communication styles, on our collective strengths and how we're going to work together and what our mission was together. And so at the end of that section and making sure I make myself fully available to them to answer all their questions in their first 90 day period and building a robust 90 day plan for them. That transformed not only the trust that we had together, but it transformed the success rate and the hit rate for, for people that we're bringing into the organization, right? So get rid of sink or swim onboarding and go overboard on onboarding would be the second thing. The third thing is, okay, so we, you know, we bring you in, we onboard you, but then we basically want you to be like everybody else. So we whitewash your talent. We just basically say, forget what you're good at you get to go through this process. And how many people who are young coming into an organization are told, like, put your head down, just do this thing for five years. When you become a director, then you can change stuff. We're not gonna, we're not gonna listen to you or give you any airtime or let you speak to us until you have been here long enough to, to, to be worthy of speaking. <laughs> you know, like it's, it's ridiculous because youth, young people coming in today know a lot more the young people maybe 20, 30, 40 years ago did coming, coming at the business. Totally. So you are doing your business a disservice by not letting, giving these people some room to run when they come in the door because they're going to do things in a different way that's going to uh, transform how your business connects with what's current, what's happening now in terms of business. So rather than whitewashing your talent, you should look at every individual and try to extract the maximum talent they have for the benefit of your business, what I call turn talent into strength and, and build everybody up who comes in the door to be their most productive and engaged self. The fourth uh, inequity is corrupted compensation. So basically nobody can, nobody understands in organizations how they're being paid. Like ask a group of people, you know, explain your compensation system to me. <laughs> explain, <laughs> yeah. explain why certain people get certain bonuses. Explain why certain people get certain options. Explain 
the, the, the variable compensation element of your, of your pay. Explain this to me. You talk to 10 people in a company, 10 people will give you 10 different answers. They don't, because companies don't compensate consistently. They basically, there's all this bias and, uh, and subjectiveness in compensation. So for, I'll give you an example. You know, I've been in talent conversations where the most passionate manager in a room is able to justify someone getting a 15% pay raise to keep them in the organization just because of their skill of arguing for that person's compensation, right? Mm. Whereas someone who's not as good at arguing, their employee basis stays 15% lower just be, just based on the ability to argue yeah. and debate, not based on objective measures of performance. There lies a problem as well, right? In that the measures of performance are also inequitable often. Exactly. They're inequitable and they're, and they're more subjective than we would like to admit. Right. So you need to, if there's anything that needs to be objective, it needs to be compensation. And you make your compensation more objective, not, by, not only by doing the, you know, the companies do, HR does these market surveys with Mercer and companies like that, where they, they come up with their benchmarks and their, their goal is to basically have the majority of their employees at the median or a little bit above the median number, right, for that particular function. Uh, however, they don't do internal equity audits to understand the variability of role of, of finance of, of compensation within their own organization. So I'll give you an example. When I was, uh, I was the youngest senior marketing director in the history of my company uh, at the age of 31. And there were senior marketing directors who were making $200,000 more than me. And the inequity there was ageism yeah. because I was young. They could get away with paying me less. And because the other person had been had had basically had the benefit of you know pay raises, annual raises, whatever it is, or they came in at a higher level, so you have this gigantic range of of pay between me on the low scale and someone else on the high scale, mm. right? But I'm aware of this, so this you think this is not going to affect my performance mm. in terms of how much I give you because you're not giving me what you could give me, right? right? So clearly you can pay that amount of money for this role. You're just choosing not to. Mm. And you're justifying it saying, because I'm, I'm, I'm young. Well, then don't give me the job. If, I'm, if I was too young to get the job, then don't give me the job. Yeah. You gave me the job, which means you believe that I can do the job. And by the way, I was leading the company's flagship division. So basically you had, you had senior directors who were managing, let's say, $700 million. I was managing $5 billion, getting paid $300,000 less than the next person. <laughs> Doesn't seem at all fair in the slightest. Is that is is that fair? I don't know. I don't think no. it's fair. Um, but you know, that's either here nor there. I'm over it. Um, <laughs> okay. So then, the last the last one we go to is um, targeted termination. So, and I, I I literally am commenting on this in my local area now because there's a company called Better.com who who just yesterday fired 900 employees over a Zoom call. Wow. They invited 900 employees, and if you're on this call, you're being terminated being fired over Zoom by the CEO. How crass. Uh, that is horrible for a number, a number of reasons. And even worse, they, they, they eliminated their entire diversity, equity, and inclusion recruiting department. It sounds to me like a recipe for disaster. Yeah. So what, I mean, what's, why would, first of all, from an investment perspective, why would you invest in this company? Second of all, why, why, the managers who made the bad decisions that put the company in the position to have to doubt to have to downsize are never terminated. 
they made the calls, the bad investments, the bad forecast, the bad whatever that led to this moment. And they're the ones who get protected time and time again. And it makes no sense. It's, it's fundamentally unfair and inequitable. And so for me, I say, you know, employee termination, like the broad-based employee base, your frontline employees should be the last resort. We should terminate everybody before we get rid of the frontline employees, because that's your connection to the customer. That's your connection to the market. That's your connection to the actual productivity center of your organization. Your CEO is very far away from productivity of your organization. Get rid of the CEO. Get rid of the leadership team. They're the ones making the, once again, they're the one who steered the ship into the iceberg. Mm. Why don't they get terminated? When things go bad, it's often because the control, unfortunately, rests with those people protecting their own positions, right? It's fundamentally inequitable, right? So you have the, you know, you're getting paid more and you get to protect yourself. Like you have, you know, let's give you an example. Let's say when I was a general manager in Indonesia, uh, I was making, let's say, 300 times more than a frontline sales rep in the marketplace, right? So my salary pays for, could pay for 100 reps, right? You should get rid of me if I do something wrong. Yeah, you know, versus getting rid of getting rid of uh, these individuals who are at the front line and and also not not being compensated enough as it is for what they do. Really interesting spin on things. I'm glad we went there with that conversation. Thanks, Omar. No problem. So, how is the future of work, the hybrid work that we find ourselves in now, following the pandemic and as we come out of it? How do you think that's helped or held back quality? I think companies that embrace it are gonna are can actually create much more equality and equity, as long as you have managers who are who are equipped to properly manage this, right? So, you know, one of the one of the biggest issues is that when you become a manager, there's no training to become a manager. There's no uh, guidebooks to becoming managers. You have, you know, some type of training programs that come into play, but largely it's kind of like learn on, learn on the go, learn on the fly, right? Um, and that's just regular management when you're going into an office together. Think about manage the managerial skills and communication skills and abilities you have to have when half your team is working virtually. Some people work at hybrid. Um, it the skill set, the ability to manage and lead has to go up uh, several notches. And so, for me, this is only going to work to the degree that we have. We're improving the quality of of management and leadership, which is why I have a lot of work today because a lot of people are calling me saying, how do we do this? Mm. You know, how do we, how do we uh, elevate the skill of our managers? Um, because if we don't, we, people are recognizing that if the managers don't improve, then um, this great resignation trend that we're having and all these types of things are going to continue and they're going to continue losing, losing talents because their environment, everyone's going to be saying we have the same ability to let you work from anywhere that, you know, if I can work from anywhere, imagine now I can work for a Chinese company from North Carolina, or I can work for anybody. So the, the, the hiring pool is, and the competition is greater than ever before. You've got to really have your standards up to par to, to not only bring in, but to keep your, your talent um, and develop them and, and, and keep them happy. So it's going to be quite challenging. Yeah, it is. So this part of the show, we typically turn the tables a little bit and I get to hack into your leadership brain. Sounds good. And uh, having had the, uh, the vast diverse experience you have, I'm really looking to get into your top three leadership hacks. What would they be? Do you think, Omar? So, I mean, top three leadership hacks. I think that the first leadership hack is uh, one that I call, um, 
MHT, and, and this is for mindset, habits, and tracking. And the reason why MHT is important is because in order for you to evolve from a toxic boss to a servant leader to a modern leader is you have to uh, minimize your ego. And the way you minimize your ego is by making sure you're taking care of yourself in other areas so that basically you don't require the ego boost that comes from having power over other people. So when you have that proactive mindset, meaning that you you are focused on what you can control and influence and not focused on managing things like corporate politics or who's going to get promoted when that you have no power over. You have the habits, high performance habits. So you are taking care of your mind, your spirit, your um, your personal development, your learning and, and your uh, your your exercise, your fitness that allows you to be able to power through and do um, and, and to hold yourself accountable, but also hold other people accountable based on the way that you hold yourself accountable. Right. So I think that that's attracting the T of the MHT. So I think that that's three leadership hacks, the mindset, the habits and the tracking are are things that I advocate for every manager to upskill on today in order for them to reduce their ego and show up as the the, the, the brilliant leader that they actually can be. It follows a, a regular thing we see on this show, actually, where the great leaders, the great entrepreneurs put themselves first. And there is this strange notion of some leaders don't feel that that's a value investment. But actually, if you don't put yourself first and get you fit to lead, you can't then be in service and be servant leader to others, can you? No, because you need their service to you for you to feel good about yourself. <laughs> yeah. And then and then nobody gets anything done because everyone's worried about trying to trying to trying to meet, you know, uh, take care of your ego needs and your ego needs have nothing to do with what the customer wants. Next part of the show, we call it hack to attack. So this is typically where something hasn't worked out in your past and your work. Maybe you've been quite catastrophic in its outcome, but as a result, the experience you've learned from it and you now use it as a positive. What would be your hack to attack? So I, I think that in this instance, it's basically going back to what I said earlier, when you're the only, so basically coming up as the only whatever, only African-American in my team in marketing, then becoming the only, you know, African-American business director, general manager, and, and several different organizations, you know, this, uh, this idea that I had to be perfect led me to have, you know, horrible panic attacks, be taken to the hospital, be, you know, have nervous breakdowns, uh, all these horrible things. And the key learning from it was just be yourself. Like, don't let the, don't put that pressure on yourself. You're not responsible for everybody else who looks like you, even though you may think you are. Do your best. Be the best version of yourself, and that'll take care of itself. And 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 have healthy habits. I was working, you know, 20 hours a week. I was, you know, uh, not sleeping well. I was drinking too much. You know, I had all these horrible things that were happening because I was trying to show up as perfect for my organization and and um, I learned later on that I could be just as effective, uh, more effective, working half the time by being a lot more focused and taking the pressure off myself. Because you're, you know, the thing about it is that there, perfection doesn't exist, right? Right. And the thing that I've learned is that uh, we get paid in organizations to increase our success rate when it comes to good decision making, right? And um, not right decision-making, good decision-making. Um, and there's a difference. Right and wrong decision-making is a function of time. You never know when you make a decision whether it's right or the wrong one. Only time will tell you that. 
but you can definitely leverage process to make more good than bad decisions. Yeah, great. And so I think that for me, it was, you know, focusing more on making quality decisions um, for myself and for, for the work, how I was going to work uh, versus trying to shoot, trying to, you know, control the right outcome, which I don't have any control over ultimately. Some very wise words. So, Omar, the last thing we want to do with you is do a bit of time travel. You can get to bump into yourself now at 21 and give yourself some advice. <laughs> what would it be? I wrote, a, I wrote an article about this actually a couple of years ago uh, about 42-year-old about me talking to 22-year-old me. <laughs> right. I think the, the advice will be the same I just said. I think, I think I would tell him, run your own race. Don't worry about perfection. Um, it's going to be okay uh, as long as you run your own race. And don't compare yourself to other people. Don't worry about what people have that you don't have. Don't worry about these types of things. Those those things fundamentally fade away over time. And all that matters is becoming the best version of yourself. And I think that that's the advice that I would give myself at that age versus trying to achieve some unattainable standard. Just be the best version of yourself. Yeah, that's great advice too. So, Omar, we're running to the end of our show now, but I don't want this to be the end of our audience listening and working with you so how can we best connect them when we're done so um best place to reach me is my website www.omarlharris.com if you're on linkedin you can follow me omar l harris we can connect there um and that's probably the two best places for you to reach me and of course they can get a copy of uh, be a jedi leader not a boss pretty much anywhere and all your other books are available on amazon we'll make sure all of those are in our show notes as well Wonderful. Thank you, Steve. It's been a great conversation. I've loved the conversation. I've, I love the fact that you bring such a lot of experience and diverse thought leadership on the subject, and you are making an amazing difference to the planet. So I just want to say thank you for what, the work you do, but also thank you for being part of our community now, Omar, as well. I, I love it, Steve. And hopefully we can talk again soon. Yeah. Thanks, Omar. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in to We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush and I've been the Leadership Hacker.